Writing the Rapids, the not-quite-monthly-anymore show where I talk to writers who are recommended to me by other writers. You can support this show on Patreon if you want. might help the show be more consistently posted. might help me be able to pay people for their time and work. But if not, it's all right. You could always just buy some books. On the show with me this month, we have Noah Cicero. Noah Cicero is 38 years old, grew up in a small town near Youngstown, Ohio. He has lived in Eugene, Oregon, Grand Canyon, Arizona, Seoul, South Korea, and currently resides in Las Vegas, Nevada. He has a movie made of his first book called The Human War, which won the 2014 Beloit Film Festival Award for Best Screenplay. His books translated into Turkish, Kurdish, and Spanish. His first book of poetry, Bipolar Cowboy, was voted one of the best books on Goodreads in 2015. He has many short stories, articles, and poems published at such places as Thought Catalog, 3AM Magazine, Wales Review, Amphibi.us, and more. I feel like I came into your writing at sort of a turning point. Um... The first book I read was Blood Soaked Buddha, and then I read Give It to the Grand Canyon. And looking at your back catalog, having stuff published in Lazy Fascist and uh, fiction in New York Tyrant and stuff, and sort of being loosely aware of your connections to like Tao Lin and Sam Pink and stuff, I feel like did I come in at like a turning point in the Noah Cicero? Uh, over yeah so i mean like my first book was published when i was 23 the human war and i lived in ohio and um that book and like go to work and the insurgent and all those books were kind of written from a guy in a guy in his 20s wrote them who was like extremely angry an extremely like uh, kind of like just just uh, like Bruce Springsteen kind of life um, mm. where he wants to get out of his town and he isn't happy and um, he is just completely just like kind of sheltered I think the person who wrote those books were kind of was kind of sheltered mm. and um, it kind of comes from that point of view and then I went to South Korea in 2012 or so for a year and kind of like uh, that just changed me and I got I had like new friends when I came back like I had barely I think previous to that if you're like gonna really investigate I spoke to a lot of kind of outlet people and I would go to New York City like two, three times a year and do readings and just go there and talk to people. And I had a very, I had a group of people that I was communicating with every day on the internet. Mm. And after I went to South Korea, I came back and I just uh, moved to Las, I went to the Grand Canyon and lived and I moved to Las Vegas. And I um, just did not, I had no, I have had really no East Coast life for since 2011 mm. east east side of america life mm-hmm. like that i've been back there total of eight days maybe 
in the last since 2011 like so i kind of just disappeared from that whole thing and i got into different books and i became a happier person and i started doing things that i really like i don't know i guess you say take charge of of your life and you start doing different things and that's kind of what happened so you came at the point where i was a happier person Hmm. (laughs) and i didn't the books aren't like so claustrophobic and they're more hopeful i think now or yeah i'd say so the like the epilogue and give it to the grand canyon is like this beautiful little dream of the future that that made me very happy to read i think yeah yeah and i think it's possible to do that at the grand canyon because it basically stays the same it's i mean if you went there in 1890 it basically would look the same as it does today mm-hmm. yeah I've, I've never been out there it makes me want to go out there um oh, yeah you have to go go ahead um one of the things i noticed was just a lot of interactions with with native people and give it to the grand canyon which is which is interesting to me part of part of my work that i do for money in michigan has to do with filming stuff for the native community out here and like the the constant reminders that there's no native people left in ohio and then hanging out with all the navajo people in the grand canyon i found interesting when i lived in ohio i don't think i ever encountered a native american Hmm. I just don't remember it. Like I don't have any recollection of it. Um, that day ever happening. I got in, but in the Grand Canyon, you work um, at the Grand Canyon. So right next to it is the Navajo Reservation and the Hopi Reservation. And then in New Mexico, they have Apaches, and they a lot of the workers, the yearly workers, the ones that would work all year, were were Native American, hmm. and. Um, so that was really interesting. I mean, because they, because they were, they, they were, they were, I don't know. They were just slightly different than yeah. naturally. I mean, really. the, the thing that right. I, I noticed a lot is just like the, like the, the sort of internal pain that is always there. Like everybody's kind of just like, you know, they're living their lives and they're happy and they have families and everything. But there's always that like, they look at something and you can just kind of tell that there's pain there, you know? You mean in the Native American? Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I guess there was, like, some pain. Um, there was this really good thing. There was this old woman, her name was Eleanor, and I think she's got, like, a character in the book, but I don't remember the name. And um, she remember one time she told me, she goes to me, something like, your Nobel Prize is for you. Hmm your Oscars are for you. Mm -hmm. She was like, we have, we don't need your Oscars. We don't need your Nobel prize. We don't need that. Those things aren't even in our world. Mm -hmm. For you, you're giving those awards to yourselves and congratulating yourselves. I was just like eating a sandwich. And she says to me, I was like, yeah, I mean, it's probably, but you grow up thinking like they teach you that like, if you do not win these awards, you do not get these things. It's it's like your fault. Mm. It's your fault. 
you didn't do it. And it's like, you know what? Like, I mean, it made me sit there and think too, like my mom was a tow motor driver and my dad was a meat cutter at a super Kmart. And I'm like, well, those things aren't for me either. Mm-hmm. Why do I think they're important? Like they're not important. Like a to the people they're important to who make them and do them it's like oh yeah 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 i mean there's this thing where you're like you can go one step into the deepness and you can be like yeah you these aren't for you or and then you can take another step and be like okay what is my relationship to this giant famous world Mm -hmm. i think they kind of taught like that taught me that like like i'm not that far removed from 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 it taught me about my own situation because I, well, I mean, I let it teach me. I didn't, I didn't, because there's so much you have to like break through mentally to, to see your own situation. I don't know if that makes sense. Go ahead. Yes. Another question. <laughs> well, I, I think that that leads into my, my trying to contextualize the timeline. So while you were at the Grand Canyon, where was that in relationship to your um, digging into Buddhism? Um, let me think here. So when I went to South Korea, I didn't do, I didn't really read any. I, wait, I read, I got a book of Chung Zhu, mm. um, an Edward Burden translation. And I read that and I thought it was really cool. Then I came home, but I didn't do any things in South Korea. I didn't know. I went to like some temples because they were giant and really beautiful. And I went to Cambodia and saw Angkor Wat. And I thought Mm. that was really beautiful. And I came home and I don't know why, but I bought like, I had all this money and I bought like uh, 20 books like on Buddhism really quickly, like a bunch of intro books. Mm -hmm. And um, then I went and I kind of read them the entire summer. I took a picture of them. It's somewhere. I think I even read the books, the the books of the saints too. Mm. And um, I read all of them. And then kind of, then I came back from the Grand Canyon. I went to Las Vegas and I couldn't find a job. And then my friend who lived in this kind of cabiny house, A-frame house on a dirt road, out mm, I'd say by Silverton, Oregon. Uh, and she, her boyfriend left her nine years. And so she said, come to my house and hang out with me. I feel really bad. And she made lots of money. So she just had me come over and I just stayed in her house for like two months before I went. And then I sit there and I, I think I bought the Bodhidharma book, the teachings of Bodhidharma with like uh, one of those Barnes and Noble's Christmas gift cards. And I went (laughs) and I was in this, a-frame house and I remember uh, it started snowing really hard and it really doesn't snow in Oregon so they don't buy salt Mm. so you're just trapped so we were trapped her and I for about three to four days on top of a mountain we could not get off we were um, I only had six cigarettes or something so I would just hit it like twice and pwn it out and it wasn't an American Spirit it was some crappy one that burns really quick. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you smoke or not, but it, it, one of those cheap ones that smoke that, that just burn really quickly. And so I had about six cigarettes for like three days being trapped. And I just sat there reading Bodhidharma 
for like three days and um it it, it was really, that's when that kind of started and then i came back to vegas and i think well i got those um like alan watts kind of what is zen kind of books and mm-hmm. another one and i wrote down all the names like bodhidharma huneng Kung Po, um, Lin Chi, you know, I, you know, you make the list. I'm very organized. I'm very, like, very, very, uh, I'm not a whimsical person. I, like, make a list. I follow the list. I do the list. I read all the intro books first. I did, you know what I mean? Like, I follow the rules. And um, I make rules. I follow the rules. That's what I do. And so I went through the entire thing. And then I had Brad Warner, the guy who wrote Hardcore Zen. Um, I, I, I somehow know him through some kind of weird con- uh, movie connection or something. Long t- long story. But he has lots of books published. And he's, like, I think, um, considered a Buddhist priest. I think it's, I think it's his thing. And um, he would tell me what to read next and what to do. And I just, re- I mean, I started with Bodhidharma. And then I read the entire thing. And then I read... Um, um, the the Vantara Sutra. The, the, I can't remember the Vantara Sutra. Wait, it's right here. Um, <laughs> the Lock of Vantara Sutra. Okay. And so this is um, kind of like the origin of Zen. Is this book? And no one knows who wrote it. No one knows exactly where it came from. They think it was written in, I think, Sri Lanka or somewhere. But I read multiple translations of whom Nang I read. I got every single possible English translation I could get off Amazon. Hmm. I got like five of them. I read every single one of them. That's how obsessed I was. I was just, I was just super obsessed. My friend Brad, he's so obsessed with Dogen mm-hmm. that he will, um, Brad Warner, the person I mentioned earlier, he is so obsessed that he has gone like people have like trans like someone would have translated something of Dogen inside a monastery or something in America. He would he's he's like flown there, got you know went to the the, the temple or the monastery, and then because it was never published, it's just sitting in the back, like just sitting there like in a book you know like handwritten or something. He he'll just sit there and read the entire thing. Mm. Go he'll go he'll like stay at the hotel and he'll go every day and sit and just read this read this book just just checking it out just seeing what they how they did it hmm. so yeah, then you get really nerdy with translations and stuff that's like a thing you just nerd out on that too and then you find a part you like and then you get the five books together and you look at each part and see what they how they did it mm-hmm. but the whole thing like even doing that is like a exercise in itself yeah, do I remember doing something like that in a classics class in college with like a carpe diem poem or something, and we got like five <laughs> different translations, and it's like, what does carpe yeah. diem actually mean? Um, and that that was interesting. What, what did you find looking at all those different translations? What did I find? Yeah, like were there major differences or anything that seemed like crazy out of place? No, I never, I never felt like that at all. I never felt like they were odd. I've always had like a lot of respect for translators, and um, I, 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 I didn't feel like they were just so different. Like I, I don't, 
when someone says like oh the bible is translated and this happened and this happened I'm like i don't really listen to it like i don't listen to those types of hmm. kind of thing i'm not i'm not i'm not bothered by weird translations or anything okay um but if you go with um uh, uh, uh hanshan you know hanshan i don't know so hanshan was a chinese poet from like uh I don't know what 500 or something i can't remember and and it, gary snyder translated him and then red pine translated him and i think edward Byrne translated him all these different people have different translations but if you if i could get into a big thing about han shan translations basha translations too i mean the one the one where the the frog jumps in the water or it goes plop or it's the sound of water mm. have you ever read you know about this poem i don't know um yeah, we can get into a big fight. We can get <laughs> big fights about that. I don't know. I can get into a big fight about poetry translations really easily. A lot more than I could about a religious one. I'm seeing there's a, a, a DT Suzuki translation of, of your frog poem, Frog Haiku. Water sound. Yeah, the yeah s- water sound. The sound or of splash water. or it's ploop. I guess the next, next thing we can kind of transition into is... Um, it's interesting to me. I, d- I did see, because I try to do a little bit of research um, when I talk to people on the show, I did see that you and him were in the movie together. And I've I've actually been aware of his writing for a while. Um, I read Sex and Zen and Hardcore Zen, and I have um, uh, Don't Be a Jerk, which is a Dogen translation. Oh, yeah. You've re- you're very informed in all this. You should interview him next. Oh, well, I don't know. I like I, I have a I have a strange um, anxiety um, uh, interviewing people who I have read before. Like I like this because it's the way that this is set up is that the people I talk to give me a list of people, and then so like I'll talk to that person, and I won't buy their books until they've said yes, they'll be on oh. on the show with me. Um, unless I've already read them, but I mean, that way I'm not spending a bunch of money on books for people. I'm not going to be able to talk to cause I spend too much money on books anyway. Right. So like, yeah. if I'm going to buy books, I need to like justify to myself that I'm buying them. And I haven't like talked to a person for this show yet that I haven't enjoyed, uh, their writing or talking to them. So it's been working out, but I do have an anxiety of like meeting people who I already admire, you know? Oh, wow. Brad will be fine. You'll enjoy very much. Yeah. He'll be very charming. I like I like his YouTube videos for sure. I it it stretches my um what I'm like my understanding of Buddhism, right? Cuz especially lately in the past couple of years he's been talking a lot about like political activism and Buddhism and especially with regard to like the um the, your west coast Buddhists who are all sort of liberal democrats who are saying it's our, our moral duty as Buddhists to stand up against Trump or whatever um yeah yeah he says that all the time I don't I don't really know that that world um close enough yeah 
to know exactly what they're doing. I mean, I know when you go to a Buddhist event, it's very liberal, and it's very. Uh, it's not. It's never poor blue collar people. No. Never. Um, I mean, I don't go. I don't know anything about secular Buddhism. Yeah. Like I mean, like I had. Uh, it, I read the books just. It's like I would have read Aristotle mm-hmm. or, or higher. Like, I didn't read them. I, I mean, I don't... I mean, I went to South Korea two years ago, and someone said something, because the class that I was helping with or something, I had to go do these classes with these people for the... the South Korea, the embassy brought me over, mm. the U.S. embassy. And um, this, like, 45-year-old woman, Korean woman, was like, I am Buddhist my whole life. And you know there's a difference between being a cradle Buddhist. You know cradle? Mm -hmm. Cradle Catholic? Yeah. So a cradle Buddhist and just reading the book. And I was like, yeah, I totally concede. Like, I completely concede. And, um, but it was like, yeah, I don't know what they do. I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to their events. Yeah. I don't have any interest in, um, doing those events. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. It's so, you know. But it, I mean, a religion, the Catholic religion, people have this really, the Catholic religion or Buddhist religion or Jewish religion, this, the religion things. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm not quite. Um, they don't understand these things have been around for thousands of years. And they've been around for thousands of years because they, they you know, give the Caesar what's Caesar's. Mm-hmm. And that's how they survive because they're just, they're not supposed to be a thing. They're like time stopped at some point. Mm-hmm. And this building is where time stops and you go to the Catholic church and it's really, really like you go in there and your first impression, oh my God, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing is that it's supposed to be, it's not, it's not boring. It's what's been done for 2000 years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just not, it's just supposed to be like this. It's just a utility and Mm -hmm. you can walk in there and be like, okay, I'm going to be okay at this. I'm just going to go on Sunday with my family and it's going to teach my kids, um, some level of endurance or something, some kind of thing. It'll help me in the community. It'll help people think I'm normal. Mm -hmm. You can do all kinds of really surface level of things and then you can walk in there and you could be like I mean I just think about it like chemistry class in high school like you don't have chemistry you don't have chemistry class because you're all going to be chemists Mm -hmm. you have chemistry class in high school to find out who can be a chemist Mm. so you all could go in there and get a C Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and leave and then just and you could go but there's going to be some people that walk into that chemistry class in 11th grade and get an A plus. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's not because, but it's just people have this thing where they think that everyone is fucking can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing worse than that fucking thought. Nothing can more pollute logic than thinking that everyone can just do anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just some kind of, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. It's just people have talents. 
and they walk I don't know it's just for me like the, the, the Buddha, you don't have to be politically something yeah it's just the same thing forever it just all it's all it's gonna I mean they had it even when China would they go around killing each other all the time in ancient China mm-hmm. they would just still sit there on the mountain watching them kill each other from the top of the mountain yeah I don't do you have thoughts on it I, I do I mean like I was I was raised Catholic so like I totally understand that sort of thing and I mean my grandparents remember when the church services were in Latin still yeah or or I remember stories my grandfather would tell me about like yeah, there used to be certain times during the mass you would ring the bell to tell people to pay attention because they were just doing the rosaries because it was in Latin. And when we switched to English, we started phasing that out and we had a priest who like really didn't want the bells to be rung anymore and would like scream and like hit the altar boys when they would ring the bell. And that sort of idea of like, I don't know, mom, like, why are we doing this? Why are we going here? Like, I can read the Bible at home and pray at home. Like, why are we doing this? Like, I don't really like some of the things that the Catholic Church is doing or saying or, you know, all the priest stuff that's been going on forever. And she's like, yeah, well, it's there for the community. I'm like, okay. Like, I'll go here for the community. And I go and, like, I hang out with the kids in youth group, but we get back to school and nobody wants to talk to me. You know, you you do the, the weekend retreats where everybody's like high on Jesus and singing songs and hanging out and talking. And then you go to school on Monday and you sit down at the lunch table and everybody like gets up and leaves. And you're like, okay, well, if we're here for the community and the community <laughs> <laughs> like doesn't, doesn't want me here, then I guess I like don't have to go anymore. That's funny. Um, that sounds fucking, <laughs> sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it. It's an interesting thing. And I mean, even younger religions, I was hanging out with a bunch of Sikh people um, a couple weeks ago in London. I was there shooting a a documentary and um, that particular temple was like, yeah, there's people that are doing it like just for tradition. Like, you know, like they're cutting their hair, they're they're doing all that stuff. Nobody's actually like practicing the religion anymore. So here we're actually coming here to practice the religion. And it's an interesting thing to me, like my experience with Zen, even though I've definitely falling off from sitting every day and I haven't read a Zen book in a while. Like it's like, I don't want to be part of a group. Like I, I definitely read about how important Sangha is, uh, uh, Ryu Suzuki talks about it a lot and I'm just like, I don't know about that. You mean like how important it is to go to the, the to the temple or something? Yeah, or just I don't know, it seems as though anytime you experience a religious or religious adjacent practice there's always that emphasis on doing it with other people or being around other people who do it. And it's like never appealed to me, regardless of the 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 practice, you know? Like I've, I've looked into old Norse paganism and stuff, and that's like 
part of it too it's like yeah like find the people in your area who are doing it and do it with them i'm like i don't want to do that i don't know i mean i really like like a catholic mass like i really like being around people during it but the thing is nobody talks during it yeah that's true and i really like that i Mm. really like how it's like a giant silent activity i'm not a i'm not a kid though you know i Mm -hmm. didn't do you were a kid and you had this experience and i am a 30 something year old man Mm -hmm. and i have a completely different understanding of what could or could not happen when you're a kid, you don't you don't know what to you have expect you have expectations and you're very emotionally tied to these expectations. But I'm in like an adult, so I can go and I can be like I have I don't I really like that no one talks to me. <laughs> yeah, but we're all doing the same thing, and it's so much fun, and I really like the music and everything. And um, but it's always I when people have religions, if you, people have lots of expectations of what they are. So my my real job, the one that pays the bills, is I work with focus groups for trials mm. uh, for civil litigation. And uh, so one of our one of the most easiest things to do at a trial is to get <laughs> you to sue an insurance company like USAA. Mm. Oh my God, it's so easy. So USAA, the one for the military. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are a pro-military thing, and they're treating the veterans terribly. Oh my God, it runs easy. It just goes right down. Everyone's through. Oh yeah, they shouldn't be treating because they have higher expectations for USAA than they do for Geico. Sure. And so you, every time this is this is you know the the Bhagavantara Sutra one hundred and one here is. First off, when you have an expectation that is slightly irrational, number one, you're going to cause yourself pain mm-hmm. because you're putting a demand on the situation. Number two is that if someone who's smarter than you, at least in that situation, knows you have that expectation, they can manipulate you. Mm. So you've double fucked yourself because now you don't like your, you don't like what's happening. And someone who's got one up on you, three IQ points higher, five IQ points, ten IQ points higher, just figured out how to fuck with fuck up your day, hmm. and just turn your mind right into a thing. So just get you to do what you what they want. So people have these expectations of uh, churches and and religions that are completely and absolutely. I mean, they're just false. There's no reason to expect anything good. Like you just go there. The only thing that's happening is you're all sitting together or you're all doing the thing. And you're listening to music. That's the only thing that's actually happening. Mm-hmm. You've all come together and you're sitting in a room. Um, it's a giant institution. I mean, you wouldn't go to Geico and get mad at them. If someone did something, you wouldn't go to the NFL. I mean, these are just institutions. And then someone says one's good or one's bad with like any large scale bureaucratic institution is not beautiful but it's it's just there in case you're good at chemistry if you're the one person mm. who's good at it i mean like i don't i don't know i don't expect everyone to be fine like i don't expect it yeah i would more i mean i put not cynically the thing is that okay as soon as you stop expecting it to be good what happens then 
you become cynical. Mm-hmm. And you just bounced in the George Carlin world. So you just went from, you went from, oh, I like the Pope. Then you're 12 years old, something pisses you off, and you're like, now I'm George Carlin. <laughs> and you're like, that's what happens to the American liberal. Like, so many of them just, like, just jumped. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, like, it, it's like they just went to a completely different continent. And then they, because they just got angry, and you're like, well, what happened to the entire middle? It's like you didn't even walk, you just took a plane to George Carlin land on a Thursday when there's like a whole middle world the middle world people uh you know they're commonly they're commonly boring and well behaved yeah <laughs> i mean it's just like a thing like like i know it's like in the 21st century the best husband is a is a douchebag mm-hmm. you know cuz he goes to work every day he cleans he knows when he needs to listen <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like i don't know does that <laughs> i don't know if that's how it sounded but a lot of the best people are douchebags in, in this century because they, they're, they're, they're like, they're normal and they're well-behaved. Hmm. Oh, you froze on me. Uh-oh. Oh, you're back. Okay. I lost you for a second. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, the, the thing that causes me a lot of sort of, like, philosophical, uh, leg work is to understand the sort of Buddhist idea of middle path and doing your thing and stuff and also like the the radical leftist like if there's a, a, a Nazi in a group of 20 people you have a group of I, I haven't heard you for like a minute oh yeah you froze on me and then and then you came back for a second, and I started to respond, and then, <laughs> and then you froze on me again. Okay, so we're back. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, I was talking about like the that sort of the jump and the gap and and the middle road stuff. How um, there's there's mental gymnastics, philosophical gymnastics that happened for me with like the the middle road sort of thing and and you know chopping wood carrying water and also like there are people literally burning down the amazon you should go there and like pick up a gun and do something about it right like the the stuff i see on twitter all the time about like the the non-racist person does more for racism than the anti-racist person does and and wondering like where all of that comes together like how do you mesh those two things or can you wait can you say this again i i had a hard time pulling this together in my brain sure um and and the the idea of walking the middle road the the sort of buddhist idea of you know chop wood carry water do your thing sit sit zazen um yeah you know be nice be compassionate and um like that that seems good to me like i can handle that i can do that and but i also hang out in a lot of like radical leftist areas of the internet and read you know, Marx and 
Zizek and people like that. And I see stuff where people are like, if you're not doing something actively, you are participating against the movement. So if you're a writer and you're writing something and what that writing is, isn't actively working against racism or against fascism or something like you're just contributing to the noise that allows it to exist. Right. Okay. 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 I get what you're saying. Okay. Number one. So my first step is to carry the water of being like, when I speak to people, I treat them equally, equally. So mm-hmm. that's, my, that's my first thing that I need to do is to learn if, 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 if there's something deep inside of my Ohio white person life that has taught me that when I am speaking to an African-American and a, and, and a Hispanic and a white person, that I am giving all everyone the same amount of respect and time. So I have to carry that water all day, every day. I have to learn that first. Hmm. How do I spontaneously, spontaneously, without any kind of forcing myself, I am going to interact with a woman that I have zero attractiveness to, and there is a woman sitting right next to her that is, for some reason, my subconscious horny self thinks is just amazingly attractive. How do I give... I need to spontaneously give without any any forethought love and caring to both. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, that that's really it, it's <clears throat> it's so that's the first thing you got to do is to learn how to do that and 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 learn how to um, look at a child and look at an old person and you don't see any real big difference in how much you should care about them. Because we're so we're so trained that children are somehow more important than old people or thirty-seven-year-old men, and um, especially in the in the trials, if you're a thirty-five to like fifty-year-old man, nobody cares. A jury never cares. Hmm. They just go, "What? Well, you should just go to work." If they're like fifty-one, they're like, "Oh, they're old, and it's really sad." If they're like 29, oh my God, they have to live the rest of their life like that. 35 to like 49-year-old men, <laughs> who cares? I don't care. Here's a $200,000. A 28-year-old with the same exact injury, here's a million and a half. A 55-year-old with the same exact injury, here's a million and a half. Hmm. And you can just watch that all day because of our expectations. Oh, well, they're nothing. What, who cares about a 38-year-old man? Who cares about a 37-year-old woman? They should just go to work with their back hurt. Of course. Why wouldn't they? But they're old. We feel more sympathy. They're young. So you have all these discriminations and arrangements in your head. And so that's the first water you have to carry is this kind of, um, I have to first learn how to interact with people. Like I'm a child. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're 32 years old and you're like, I am a child and I need to learn how to behave because my parents never taught me. But, um, these books can teach me. And um, you, I mean, that's hard to admit that you go, you know, my parents didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. My parents, my, my, my community did not teach me how to talk to people. 
and how to treat them. And that is an incredibly, um, if you can do it, you, you, you are, you are as brave as you can get, I think. Cause you're, you're saying, man, my, I, I'm going to, um, they didn't do it right. And it's so hard for a person to say, you know what? My parents didn't do it right. They did not teach me. And, um, cause so you first learned that. And then your next question was something about, did that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then just like, you know, how, how do you go from that to, you know, uh, smashing the state, you know, <laughs> smashing the state. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you want to smash the state? This is your question or I mean, like, yeah, how? just like, how, how do you, <laughs> um, I guess the thing is that, um, it's, it's, it's tough to have a sort of like large scale perspective of what you were just talking about having like as an individual, right? Like individually not doing actions and not having thoughts, um, that perpetuate those sort of things. And then, but like participating in a world that's built around them, right? The the meme I see a lot is there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Like even though I bought your book and I know that you're you're a pretty decent person and I know that that cat and her boyfriend who published the book are pretty decent people. I see them on Twitter and they seem fine and stuff. Like I don't know. Like I don't know where the trees to make that paper got cut down. I don't know what workers had to you know, like get paid four cents a day to cut down the trees to make the paper and, I, you know, all that stuff, right? Like, how do I, like, participate in the world that is, like, built to oppress? Even though in my own head and in my own, like, actions between people, like, I'm nice, you know? <laughs> you are asking... <laughs> Answer me, Buddhist man. I'm not. No, I mean, uh, you're saying that. How do you interact with people, even though it's happening, or how do you feel about it? Yeah, just like. I guess the feeling is like it feels like there's more I should be doing than just being nice, than like just being a not racist person or not being a not misogynist person. Like it. I think that's the question that, that Brad gets asked a lot in in ways that I don't think fully illuminate what, what the heart of the question is. And, and obviously I'm struggling to get at the heart of the question, but the question is like, I guess, I guess maybe thinking of it as a question is limiting, but like, so the problem is that the world is interconnected, um, philosophically like on a buddhist level like the world is interconnected and that's that's cool but like um even without that like practically the world is interconnected right so uh i think it was in i think it was in hardcore zen brad talks about karma and he talks about how karma is instantaneous so like if you punch a person you're the the karma you're getting is is right as you're punching the person right like you're hurting somebody that's your karma your karma is you did a bad thing um, but like, 
if I go to the store and buy an apple, you know, I'm kind of like doing a bad thing because like the the migrants who are living in trailers getting paid four cents a day, who got bussed up from Mexico for the fall to to not get paid very well and not get treated very well just to get bussed down to Mexico again in the winter so that they can give some money to their family to not starve during the winter in Mexico. Um, and I'm, I'm clogging everything with, with metaphors, but the, the problem is that like everything I do or buy in the world that isn't like a strictly one-to-one interpersonal interaction, like perpetuates some form of oppression or discrimination or exploitation. And there's like no way that without actively trying to dismantle those systems for me to like not participate in them. <laughs> right? And like I've, I've been searching for a while for like the Buddhist answer to that and I, I'm just, I'm struggling to find it. What do you, I mean, you're saying that everything you do, you do. Is, is when you do buy things, it's bad. I mean, kind of, yeah. But, like, not just me, right? Like, everybody. Everybody who goes to the store is, like, participating in that, right? Like, you know, it, it, I found it interesting in, in your in Give It to the Grand Canyon talk about how all these women have Beyonce now. But, like, you buy a Girls Run the World t-shirt that Beyonce designed or whatever, <laughs> right? And, like, it's women in a sweatshop in Taiwan, like making those t-shirts and they're not being paid a living wage so they don't have 401ks or healthcare. like uh it feels so gross um okay so i mean this is a super complex yeah i mean okay so i work with immigrants Mm -hmm. and i work with them and their children and they want their children to grow up and have good jobs and buy apples and they're not thinking about it a lot of them even if they knew that their cousin was an apple picker they are not going to think about it they're going to be like as soon as my cousin rises one inch I'm done thinking about apples Mm -hmm. and you have that right there you have a lot of that you have a lot of it's a lot of people as soon as they rise one inch Regardless of race, they stop thinking about everyone one inch below. Mm-hmm. And that's what the majority of the people do. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I have given a million drunken and coffee shop things just like you did. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, there's no short of it in my thing. But there's also a point in me where I almost feel like it's just a personality type that thinks it's bad. Mm. Like, it's just... Like, it's... You know, like, the easiest one is musical talent. Mm -hmm. And you... Everyone has that friend where you can be like... You put on a song, it doesn't matter if it's by, you know, a country song, rap song, or Bach. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, this is in C minor. And they're doing a uh, four or five beat or something. Mm Mm-hmm instantly and you're just like 
what the fuck are you hearing that I'm not hearing? We're in the same room. We both have ears. You're hearing something that I'm not hearing. And I think there's just a small portion of the population <laughs> that can hear it. Mm-hmm. And it's not enough to win. Mm. Like you, that portion of the population that can has the, the talent to hear the misery can go, I can go and work directly with immigrants and I can go and do this and this and this. And I can work really hard. And I think that if I keep at it, me and the people working, we can, things can be helped. But I don't expect other people to be able to say, you know what, this is in C minor and it's in a, and it's in a four or five beat. Mm. I don't expect other people to hear it. And I take CBD oil every night to go to sleep too. So that was another answer that I have for you is um, <laughs> <laughs> some some small narcotic it also helps um, deal with that. As I, I don't know if that's the Buddhist answer. <laughs> but it, um, I think the only thing I can is like, I know I can do something. Like, I, I feel like every if you are, you're the kind of person who can hear the D minor of suffering. Mm-hmm. Of injustice I mean it really hurts because you think about like I get paid and I basically give all my money I get my money from the top one to ten percent you know mm-hmm. and then they give me some every two weeks and then I have to give. I basically give all of it back unless I like go to a local Chinese place so 12 bucks has gone to my local community mm-hmm. to someone who might live in my city twelve dollars out of all the money I make, or if I go to the Papusa El Salvadorian restaurant on the corner. So about $27 I've spent on people that might have kids who go to school here, like live here, mm-hmm. 27 fucking dollars out of all my money. I was like, it's ter-. and then they take the money and then they go and, and they, you go there and you give them, you go to work. And then you, you, while you're at work, they're taking some portion of your labor and paying off a politician to take more of your labor and, and to take less of the, like less money of theirs and more of yours. And then you go and buy something and the person you bought it from is doing the same thing. And then, yeah, it's completely like it is completely. If you are just existing makes your life worse in America. Mm-hmm. The fact that you like just exist. The only thing you can do is like is like the only way you you can be okay with it is if you like don't if, as long as you don't have that talent where you don't hear the D minor of suffering of injustice, then you can just peacefully live in it. Mm-hmm. But like yeah, it's very like there's so many things that just make your life worse that you think are making your life better. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're trying to say? I, I guess so. It's just. Um... I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I guess I think about like the the sort of like bodhisattva sort of thing where it's you know just trying to make it better for everybody. But like not not only does just existing in America make your life worse, just existing in America means that you are <laughs> making other people's lives worse, right? Yeah. And it's just it's just a little little thought experiment I try every once in a while. We 
we've we've gotten like really far away from writing um god i got like real far away this is the farthest away in this show i think i've ever gotten from writing well i mean i just i mean it's it's tough i would think that you have to exist like that you have to exist where you make your life worse by existing mm-hmm and all of your pleasures have now become all of your happiness have become monetized by like people that would never speak to you mm-hmm. and it's so like oh my god it's like <sighs> listening to like a rich person talk about how their kids are like juniors in high school and they've already they've had a, a professional college person come they, um, to give them tours of college to find their and give them tests, personality tests to find the right college mm-hmm. so you're not only richer than me but your children are going to be richer because you, you've just monetized mm-hmm. I mean, you're, just, you're just winning you're constantly winning and there's nothing I can do to, to, to get ahead on you and your, your, your megalomania is something so powerful that you don't even see it yeah, and it's and in, I'm talking about like rich people I know who donate to liberals. Yeah. Um, well, oh, there's an idea um, in uh, in a, a book by Slavoj Žižek where he talks about the liberal communist. He talks about people like Bill Gates who like, you know, give millions of dollars to cure malaria in Africa, but at the same time, like, there's people who work for Microsoft who are making minimum wage. And you're like, yeah, you're you're a nice dude. But like, like, dude, come on, you know, like, come on yeah. is, is sort, of, <laughs> sort of the thing, right? But those, those people don't even see it. Yeah. They have no idea. They have no idea that's happening because they can't hear it. Mm. And it's like they can't hear, they can't hear the sounds of it. You know, they just don't hear it. And you can't get it through to them. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's this confusion from movies because we start watching movies when we're really little. In movies, the people, everyone is redeemable. Mm-hmm. Everyone is redeemable in a movie. Like the worst fucking person ever is going to come around right at the end and realize they should have loved their kid or something. Mm-hmm. But that's not how things work. That is not how they work. And you need to get it in your fucking head that there are people who do not give a shit and will never give a shit. Yeah. And, in, I mean, there's nothing you can do. You just need to fucking leave. If you're benefiting their business by being the best fucking worker, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, just fuck. I mean, there's no fucking way you can fucking do anything. Yeah. Well, just, so that's the thing. No, is <laughs> is just like there there's this like constant desire to like or this constant sort of drive to like participate to make things better participate in something right like go to your local open mics and clap really hard and stuff so that like the writers of tomorrow will like feel like writing is a good thing to do um but like man oh man do i want to just like not participate in anything <laughs> Do I want to like, yeah, like me personally, like I want to just like 
sit in my lawn with my dog and like not work and not talk to people and like just have my wife come home at the end of the day and then I'll like talk to her and like that's good like that's enough humanity right and you're like I'm like constantly tugged in those two directions because like I also personally want people to write more and I want people like like you and the people who I've talked to on this podcast to like have their books in Barnes and Noble and have like your 45 year old like mother read it at the beach you know and so I'm like trying to do both things simultaneously um which is weird you know it's it's that constant like duality of of being alive <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. yeah. So the the work that you do, I'm I'm just gonna hard cut on this because otherwise we're gonna go forever, and I don't want to take your entire Saturday. You know, I'll, I'll give you a thing. So in the the legal when the in the legal world where they're talking to people mm-hmm. during a, a vadir, the lawyer will be talking. You know, vadir when they talk to a jury. Okay. You go. Let's etch a sketch. Mm. You can have that. I'll sell it to you for thirty cents. Great. So, all you right. Can use that in, I think it sounds good. It's like let's etch a sketch, and you move to the next thing. Yeah, I like it. Let's etch a sketch right now. You, <laughs> you sent you sent me a link to to a news story and said this is my current writing pro- project. If you have time, ask me about this. And you mentioned yeah. working with with immigrants, so let's let's have you just go deeper into it. So the place I work at is called the Reba's Worker Center. It's uh, in Las Vegas, and um, it's part of this giant thing called Anzalon, which I, it's an acronym for something. And um, it helps immigrants all through America, workers um, stopping deportations. Um, one of them is TPS, which is a temporary protective status, which most people don't know what that is. Mm. Like, have you... Um, most people probably listening and be like, I don't know what that is at all. So a temporary protective status was given to people from eight different countries in the 90s. Um, and two of them were Honduras and El Salvador. And so these people came over after the Civil War, in the Civil War, and this earthquake that happened in Central America. And they came here and they came through Mexico or they, a couple of them flew here. And um, they have this legal status that does not make it possible for them to get citizenship until one of their children turned 21. So I work there with, um, um, so all the parents are TPS, or at least one of the parents, and then all the children are American citizens. They've all been born here. And Trump tried to kick out every TPS person, mm. um, which would be about 200,000 people. And it would make about two or 300,000 children into orphans in a day. Mm. So if it didn't go to the court system, he would have made 300,000 orphans in a day, which is about the most Nazi shit ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because people, like, they don't think, like, okay, so you get all the Nazi shit and all the things that the Japanese did to Koreans. So we'll just use World War II because I don't expect anyone to know, to know Fujimori, Medallia, or uh, Pinochet is. 
I know, who, I know who Pinochet is, but I don't know who the Okay, first you got Pinochet. Person. Okay, good. Um, so, but they did all their stuff through incremental laws. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. He was, like, trying to just tell people that had been here 20 years. One, one guy, he has been here since 1989 mm. with the same legal status. He is completely barred from getting this citizenship. And... Um, so basically I got the, for the thing, my project was like, they had me go with the kids and I taught the kids to write narratives about their lives and what it would mean to have their parents taken away, to be deported in a day. And um, I had a, the children interview their parents. This was really exciting because the children had never been allowed to just, you know, never been in a situation where they could be like, mom, you must answer me. Dad, you must answer me. Mm-hmm. The kids were super excited, and the parents were super excited. Um, so then they wrote the articles. They're kind of like articles, narratives, and then we had a giant reading at Writer's Block in Las Vegas, which is like the number, it's like the number one store bookstore in Las Vegas, a hipster bookstore. Okay, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, they, and they have like a room where the readings are. It's really cute. It's really it's Las Vegas, so everything is like bigger than normal and cuter than normal. Mm because we're Las Vegas. And um, so we had, and all these politicians came and, um, or their assistants, the senators' assistants came, a couple assemblymen told us, they gave all the kids certificates and they gave little speeches and everything. The kids randomly, some of them, it was my job to host the event and I got the kids to come up. Some of them just burst into tears though. And I'm sitting there, I'm the host, you know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, the kids, and it's just crying on stage right now. And I would just go up and be like, okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then I kind of get them off. Then I bring the next one up and I didn't know if they were going to cry or not. Mm-hmm. But like they would either make it through or they would just burst into tears. Mm-hmm. Because it was a it was an event where there was no jokes. It was like I had no ability to use my sense of humor. Because these kids were just going to tell everyone, listen, if you let this happen, my life will be destroyed. Yeah my parents life will be destroyed and so um then we did that and now we're going to take the stories and put them on a national level and then i think we're flying to washington dc and they're going to try to get at least one of the kids to go into the house of representatives and like read a story Mm. i'm supposed to i they just told me last night but i was drinking and that that i'm supposed to fly to washington dc or something but they this ariba thing does events constantly okay People, so they, um, well, they do training classes. They have training classes for immigrants. They have, they are in a constant movement where um, they are trying to teach people in every city in America where they have these kind of end line immigrant centers to, to keep them moving. Like their movement is nonstop. Like uh, their interaction with politicians, their interaction with the media. Um, and, and they just, every time anyone shows any proficiency that they might be able to organize, they teach them. They mm-hmm. just get them, they, they teach them more classes. They get them, you are the next person. Keep moving, keep moving. It's really like, um, it's very strange to me because it's like some kind of political thing I'm doing. Like it reminds me of like Alan Ginsberg talking about his parents hanging out with the Wobblies or something in like 1930 mm-hmm. remember when remember when uh, this is, do you know Alan Ginsburg, you, I know you know he is but 
Um, there's that one poem where he's like, he's talking about how his parents would bring him to these like political events because they were Jewish and people treated him like crap. And, um, and that was like a real thing. Like this is a thing where these children have to go to this political event every Wednesday and mm-hmm. sit while their parents have to talk about how are they going to, what are they going to do next? So the, the, the dominant majority doesn't destroy their life. Hmm. And um, their case for TPS is currently in the court system. It went to a the appellate court in California. And um, uh, even if they say that Trump is right, it can go to a, what is called an on bach court where every single uh, um, judge, appellate judge or something in, in California has to judge it. Mm. And it can go to the Supreme Court. So they're trying to get it to last until there's a next president. Sure. Yeah, it's so, not too long now at this point. No, no, we're okay. And I think it's going to be possible. But I don't even think they would leave anyway. They would just go into uh, some sort of... They would hide. Mm-hmm. And then they would wait until something good happened and they could reemerge. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the manpower it would take to deport 200,000 people would be intense yeah i don't know yeah i don't think ice could handle that no yeah yeah, the logistics behind that is i mean that's that's the thing about our president right is that he he says he's gonna do things that are just like logistically impossible (laughs) yeah 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 he does that um every day right Mm -hmm. so is that so that's um is that part of the same organization that you do your legal stuff with? Or no, is the, the I work two different at a things? personal injury law firm. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, it's a, I mean, it helps the knowledge I have from the thing, but it, it's not related. Okay. Hmm. So are you, are you working on um, any new books or anything right now? No, no, not at all. Hmm. <laughs> great <laughs> should i save should i just make one up and be like yeah i'm working on something i have some kind of dream if you no, want I to i don't want no, you, I, don't. I don't want you I to don't have anything i don't have one dream in my head related to like my own book or something hmm. huh do we have any other writing things we can talk about? Jesus, man. I um, I don't know if I, how cool I am of a writer anymore. I might have gone and done something else. Maybe the, the thing you were talking about when you were saying, I met you at a different point in your life. Like that different point is transitioned into a different person. Yeah. And maybe I... Um, I don't really feel as angry anymore. Like my mother is dead. She died on January 3rd or something Mm. this year. And I feel like now I feel even better. Hmm. Like, um, it's like something's over. Do you, do you feel like you wrote primarily because you were angry then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like this, um, but I also don't know what to write during the Trump times. Like, I haven't written at all when he's president. Maybe the day he's not president anymore, I'll walk over to the thing and start typing. Yeah. Because I don't... What are you supposed... I don't know what you're supposed to write during this period of time. Like, I just can't figure it out. Like, what possibly could be written? 
And like, and the thing is, like, I don't really. I mean, like, it's very. Like, I'm reading *The Possessed* right now by Dostoevsky. Have you have you read that? Mm-mm. And it's like pretty good. It's like everybody's political and going insane, and becoming like super ravenous, and like they're possessed by demons hmm. about about politics and stuff. And like, well, they remember that thing you said earlier about smashing the state, right? Mm-hmm. Like the only way the state's gonna be smashed is like someone who's really great, like AOC or somebody, some some superhuman. Mm-hmm. Who's just better at all? Not better. Um, they have something inside them that we don't have, mm. and it could be bad. And it could—it doesn't matter if they're bad or good. As in um, this element in you know the periodic table of human elements mm. is inside them. Sure. I'm actually stealing this from Arthur Rubinstein, the the pianist. You know him? I don't. Oh my God! I don't know anything. I... Arthur Arthur Rubinstein is the great pianist of the early twentieth century. Um, uh, so he said that there was something. I'm paraphrasing through Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould, do you know pianist Glenn Gould? No. <clears throat> so Glenn Gould was telling this story about Arthur Rubinstein the time he hung out with him, <clears throat> and Glenn Gould was a younger guy. And, and Rubenstein was already old, you know, and Rubenstein said so there was something great inside of him, even though he wasn't, he said, I'm, I'm not that good. He was like, I miss 30 keys a night. Mm. Horowitz, which is another pianist, would only miss one key a night, supposedly. Mm. <coughs> I'm like losing my throat here. I apologize. Let me get a drink of water. So Rubenstein said, that there was just some element inside like Hitler and Stalin and Roosevelt and, you know, General Sherman or something. And, mm-hmm. um, Frida Carlo. Like, there was something in... Did I, I don't know if I said it right now. You know what I'm talking about. Frida. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. There's just some magical thing inside them. This element. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad or what they do with it. It's just this thing that's just super powerful. Mm. And you say you have to get like this super powerful person and then, but the sad thing is that, like, you have to convince everyone that someone's wrong. And you kind of smash the state. So you have to kind of make everyone into a bad person for, te- for a short period of time hmm. to defeat their badness. So you have to become just, you have to become just a little bit more evil than them to win. But then you have to, like, pull it back <laughs> mm-hmm. and be like, okay, stop being evil really quickly. Yeah. But the only way you're going to be, you're going to beat Mitch McConnell is if you're just a little bit more evil than he is. Hmm. And like, just a little bit more motherfuckery. Like you, and I, I don't know. I feel like AOC is just going to be growing. I mean, it's just a positive. It's like a being a hopeful, but mm-hmm. she's this kind of character. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't know if that's true. I mean, like, I don't. I don't think Bernie or Elizabeth Warren have it. I don't think so either. I think. I think they're kind of. They're okay. Well, I don't think they're, yeah. Ber- Bernie's interesting. I, I, I mean, he's he's he he doesn't have that element that I think that we're talking about, but he somehow just like managed to 
stay in that world. <laughs> I mean, there's there's that famous picture of him being like dragged away as as yeah. a young man by two cops during a protest. Like, yeah, I mean, he's been in it, and this is just what he knows, and this is like the next logical step for him. This is just like keep trying to be president until he dies. <laughs> but um, I mean, like Rashida Tlaib has interesting things about her and. Yeah, there's there's a couple people and a couple people even from Michigan that it seems like there there could be some good things about them. Um, yeah, but, but that's like the argument against anarchism, right? Is that like all revolutions are inherently authoritarian? So like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna like have some big powerful leader to organize all these people to overthrow the government and then have them just be like, nope. Goodbye, everybody. Oh, you're saying because they're so used to being organized. They're liking it. Yeah, well, I mean, just, like, whoever gets put in charge is going to, like, keep being put in charge. I mean, even George Washington didn't even really want to be president. He was just like, okay, guys, I'm going to go be a farmer now. Like, we we kicked the British out, and then they are like, no, we're going to make you into a god. And, you know, he's just like, no, I don't know about that. But then he did, because sense of duty or whatever. Um... We are we are at time, okay. Now, so, um, I feel I feel like we gotta. Normally, normally I give who I have on the last word, so I'm gonna give you the last word, and then we're gonna pause, and I'll have you do your reading, and then I will let you go on about your day. All right, this is really good. Thank you. So, if you have anything you want to promote or anything you want to say. Um, sort of on, uh, yeah. If you just if you if you have if you have like a, a call to action or anything, um, you should uh, you should buy Juliet the Maniac by Juliet Escoria. So that's my call to action. Okay. Also, you can go and try to find a place in your community that helps immigrants in some way. Um, it's not that hard to find if you Google for 15 minutes. Um, and you go there and try to do something besides um, what you're doing. Just, you know, you should, you should probably do it. <laughs> I had a mission. I was going to walk into the forested part between the railroad and the West Wim Road. It was probably not a good idea. No one ever did it. No one ever left the trails. But there was a part of me that didn't care if I died. During those days, I felt like life was endless. All I could see was endless life ahead of me. There were no locations no stopping points. There were no candles in any windows. The world had no place for me. I wasn't even being sad. I wasn't even having self-pity. I had no interest in anyone telling me, it is going to get better. The banal platitudes of my country would not save me. All my friends were in Korea, or they had gone back to their homes in America but I had no home. Wherever I was, I was just there, and that's all. On the way out the door, 
Dream was walking down the hall and asked me where I was going. I said to the forested part. He told me, man, I am, I am scared to go there. Are you allowed to go there? Mm, I don't think anyone will care. Do you want to come? He stood there thinking about it and said, yeah, let me get the right shoes on. Dream and I walked down the railroad tracks. Dream said, I don't know if my mom wants me going in here. She says there are rattlesnakes. I might run if I see a rattlesnake. If there are rattlesnakes, it'll be okay. They won't even notice us. I don't understand how a rattlesnake couldn't notice us, said Dream. Because they are busy. When we are afraid of snakes, we are projecting ourselves onto the snakes. We are making the snakes aware of us. But really, they are snakes. And they are doing their snake thing. They have places to go and things to do. They know what they are doing. They aren't looking for humans to bite. That calmed him a bit. Right before we entered the forested part, I said, We have to walk quietly if we are going to see something. Walk like this. I picked my foot up and then put it down on my toes softly. And then mindfully push the back of my foot down. See how quiet that is? You try. Dream, even though he was a big man, did the same kind of steps. Okay, let's be quiet, I said. We slowly walked through the forest apart. There were old Utah junipers everywhere. Little tiny cactus balls on the ground. I stepped on a cactus ball. I felt the spikes drive into my foot. I wanted to be angry, but I didn't care. I let it happen. Dream was like, oh shit, Billy, you stepped on a cactus. I was like, yes. We sit down on the ground. I took my shoe off and picked the needles out. The bottom of my foot was bleeding a little, but it wasn't bad. We stood up and walked. I realized we were lost, but I didn't tell Dream. He seemed to have full trust in me. It felt good that anyone trusted me. As we were walking, we heard noises. We both stopped. I loved hearing noises in the woods. I loved feeling the rush that something big and scary might be hiding behind a tree, ready to eat me. The desire to be eating was over overwhelming at times, but I didn't tell anyone. Dream and I walked toward the noise. I looked back and Dream looked nervous. Like he wanted to go back, but he had to live up to a certain level of masculinity and keep going. And there they were, a small family of javelinas, little pig-like creatures covered in fur. There was a mom and three kids about 30 yards away, I pointed at them and Dream looked. His face lit up. Our faces were full of excitement. The mom looked at us, then suddenly dashed ahead five yards toward us, stopped and made a noise. We both got scared. Neither of us had javelina training. We both picked trees and got up in them. We were both only four feet above the ground, but that was enough. 
Havelinas can't climb trees. The mother Havelina realized we were no threat. We weren't going to come any closer to her babies. We stood on branches in the trees, looking at the family living their lives. They were just living outside among the rain and cold and heat.